This audio recording is of our regularly scheduled service, February 28, 2016. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Genesis chapter 11, where we're at, and this is the last sermon in the Genesis part one. Uh, we'll be in four parts. We'll, we'll get through Genesis uh, eventually. Uh, in the month of March, we're going to be spending time uh, in the last days of Jesus' life, Matthew 26 and 28, and uh, um, celebrating Easter at the uh, end of March. And so that's where we'll be next week. But for now, we're going to be in the first 26 uh, verses of Genesis. I'm going to read them. Please give me grace as I mispronounce the names. You Hebrew scholar, I am not one. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 11 says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And when they had said, Then they had said, Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us Make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood, and Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And after Arpachshad lived, after he fathered, Shelah four and three years and had other sons and daughters. And when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber four and three years and had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had 30, lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Rehu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And Rehu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Rehu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarah lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, He fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is God's Word. Now in your Bible, if you're reading through it, you probably see a little subtitle or bold little subheading there, probably calling this very famously the Tower of Babel, that being Genesis 11. It probably could just as easily be called the Nimrods of Shinar, which is probably a more appropriate language, understanding what we understand Nimrod and the connotations that it is. And we'll explain what that means in a second. When Noah and his family exited the ark, God commanded them to multiply and fill the earth, similar as to what he had done or told Adam and Eve. And so this scattering across the earth was very slow, um, taking what it seems like at least a few generations. 
Genesis 10.25, this is last week, obviously, um, mentions one of Shem's descendants, the great-grandson named Peleg. And in verse 25, it said that in his days, the earth was divided. His name means division. And it's likely that the earth was dispersed, not split in half at the birth of this son. But about this time, the earth was divided or dispersed, perhaps giving us somewhat of a time period of when the Tower of Babel happened, um, as we read in Genesis 11. Before that time, before they were dispersed, um, they actually gathered uh, a large number of Noah's descendants uh, gathered in this land of Shinar that we read in the plain of Shinar in Genesis uh, chapter 11. And this would be the future site of the kingdom of Babylonia. And if you are a geography buff, it is the area just north of the Persian Gulf, the, the kind of tip of the Persian Gulf. And this is where many of Noah's descendants gathered, including probably some of Shem's descendants, the Blessed Line, they gathered together in this plain before they would eventually be scattered. And in this context, we would think that at first, like, okay, gathering, that's smart, work together, build something together, you know, share and pool your resources. But in this context, it's not a responsible thing that they're doing. It's actually quite rebellious. Um, basically, instead of obeying God's very clear command to go and fill the earth, and scatter across the earth, and be fruitful and multiply, they are choosing to settle. Okay, The, the Nimrods are settling, so don't be a Nimrod is the whole lesson of the story. And again, I'll explain what that means. The realize is Nimrod, Genesis chapter 10, was the one who started in the plains of Shinar. So really, the people who are founding this place are the Nimrodians, or the Nimrods, if you will, of um, the descendants of actually Ham. And Ham is the cursed son of Noah. Now, during this time as Genesis 11 begins, the, the whole of the earth or all of, of people, civilization, um, they are using the same language. And at this point, we see they live in the exact same place and they are unified in every way. And these Nimrodians are very numerous. There's many of them. It's been several generations. They're very strong. They're very united in their efforts, uh, seemingly very intelligent, and enamored with their own wisdom and somewhat impressed with their own strength. They pridefully decide to build a life on themselves, by themselves, for themselves. And so what they're really doing, recognizing that um, what God has said for them to do is that they're rejecting any responsibility to obey God's Word. And we have to remember that these are a people who the Noahic flood is only a few generations away. So it's not as if they don't know what you know, has happened, but they are deciding, if you will, to reject what has happened, to forget what has happened, to deny God, and to ultimately invite other men to come and to join them in what amounts to their idolatry. But by grace, God won't let them be Nimrods. And by God's grace, He won't let us. And we'll see how that unfolds. Because what He does is He shatters their dream tower that they're building, this grand city that they're doing, by dispersing them 
so that he can ultimately gather them into a better one. Now, the question as you read the Tower of Babel is, what exactly did they do that was so wrong? Is it just that they built this really tall tower? What's going on here? And the first hint is in verse 3. And in verse 3 of, of chapter 11, gives us kind of insight of what is really going on. The people begin to say to one another, come let us, this phrase, come let us make, come let us do this or that. And the phrase is going to be repeated several times throughout Genesis chapter 11. But it's not the first time the phrase has appeared in Genesis. The first time that that phrase appears in Genesis is in chapter 1, when God is heard to say, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Now, the creation of mankind was the pinnacle of His creation. It was different than any other creation. Prior to that, God had said, let there be water, let there be stars, let there be moon, let there be sun, let there be plants, let there be animals, all these things. And then He stopped when He got to mankind on day six, and He says, all right, we're going to do something special here. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And all of creation was designed to display God's greatness, to, to, to glorify Him and to make much of His majesty. We can look at animals, we can look at sunsets, and we can see aspects of God's beauty and God's wisdom and God's strength and other aspects of God's character. But mankind was different. Mankind had the capacity, having been imbued with the image of God, to not just create like God did, but to, He had certain authority. He had certain responsibility to represent God. And he also had a spiritual capacity to commune with God and display who God was in a way that creation or other parts of creation couldn't. Mankind was designed to do that. And mankind still does that, though it's marred with sin. The image of God is imbued, the likeness of God is imbued on mankind unlike any other part of creation. And so when God said, let us make man in our image, what he was truly doing was intending to glorify himself. He was saying, look, let us come and glorify ourselves through mankind. God, from the book of Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, the Bible reveals that God wants us to seek his glory, that basically God is, above all things, about himself. Now, that probably sounds disturbing at first, because with men and mankind, when there's a man or a woman or human that's about themselves, we call that kind of person a narcissist, right? We don't like narcissists. A narcissist is a person that is... um, so enamored with themselves, they, they so completely admire themselves that they promote themselves as superior in every way to everyone they might engage with. We are seeing a lot of narcissists today as the political landscape unfolds. They're talking loud, they're talking brash, they're talking about themselves. We don't like narcissists. We don't like sinful men making much of themselves sinfully. But it's not the same with God. God is not a cosmic narcissist. When we talk about God being about Himself, we're not saying God is this cosmic narcissist like men are narcissistic. God is sinless perfection. 
And God is in fact superior in every way to everything and everyone. So when we talk about God, what we're talking about in terms of his character and and his heart of who he is, we're talking about perfect love. We're talking about God who is perfect in justice. God who is perfect in mercy, perfect in grace, perfect in wisdom, perfect in strength. Perfect in every way you can think of. And so when we talk about glorifying God or calling people or or working to magnify God, we're talking about magnifying those very things that we would naturally praise. Everyone would naturally praise perfect love. We would naturally praise perfect beauty and perfect justice. Perfect strength. We would go, yes, we do it all the time. We look at sunsets or different beautiful things in creation, we go, whoa! We don't think about it. It it comes out of us because it's beautiful. We do the same when we watch sports. We don't analyze it. I mean, we do eventually, but in the moment we're like, wow! Because what we're seeing is an aspect, if you will, of God. And so when we talk about glorifying God, we're talking really about praising God for who we know that He is. Now, men, and the reason why a narcissist bugs us so much is, first and foremost, it reminds us of ourselves. But we're being asked, if you will, to praise that which is sinful and broken, that which is truly not superior but quite inferior. Apart from Christ, all men and women are narcissists. All men and women, all humankind is devoted to seeking its own glory. And it's so obvious in our culture. Not just obvious when a political race comes around. It's obvious in that we have what we celebrate as the age of information, right? And what the age of information has revealed or maybe become and therefore revealed, it's become the age of self-promotion. Where we talk about ourselves, where we celebrate ourselves. And sadly, but very truthfully, this did not begin with the World Wide Web or Trump Tower. That's not where narcissism began. It actually began back in Genesis 3, and it unfolded here in Genesis 11, in the plains of Shinar, with a tower built by a bunch of nimrods. Okay? That's where it began a long time ago, this, this devotion to self-glory. Now, When the men say, unlike God, come let us, come join us, what really is is an invitation is to come disobey with us, come build something for ourselves, come let's build a life for ourselves, devoted to ourselves to display our awesomeness. That's what's happening. And so when they start saying things like, come let us make bricks. At first you read that and you go, making bricks, right? Making bricks. But they're doing much more than that. What says, come let us make bricks, they're really talking about what's going to be the foundation of their civilization, literally and figuratively. The foundation of their civilization are going to be bricks that they make, bricks that they create. 
Bricks that they burn, if you will, and harden and strengthen to build a foundation. And this is much more than just construction materials. These are the very core heart things that are going to be the foundation of what they build, the foundation of their identity. Having forgotten who God is, right? And again, they know who Noah is. It's like great-great-great-grandfather. Remember? The stories that are thousands of years past for us are like just you know, a few generations for them. Very fresh. And they're, no, they, they have very conscious, like, you know, understanding of the fact that the world was so messed up and so devoted to its own corruption that God wiped it clean and saved eight people. So they're aware of this, but they're deciding to deny that, to deny that they need God, deny that they, are, they should be grateful for His grace, deny that they're accountable to Him, and instead go, we're going to build a civilization based on our work of what we can do on us. And then they say, we're going to build a city. Now that we have these bricks, we're going to build a city. And again, we're not talking about them. They don't say, we're just going to build a little hut or build a a nice ranch, or build a village or town. They're going to build a city. And biblically, a city always represents more than just some dense population center. When you talk about cities in the Bible, you're really talking about all things that, like the center of culture, and, and everything that's in culture, and that would include relationships, and that would include recreation, that would include work, that would include education and politics, all these pieces And at the center of that city that's being built, based on all these bricks that they have created, is this tower. And it's a tower that represents what I believe is is spirituality. A worldview to help you answer the big questions of life, like who I am and why am I here and, and what happens after I die. And everyone has that. Everyone has that center thing that centers them. It says they want to build a tower to heaven. Not just build a tower. A tower that's actually in heaven. That reaches that high. Meaning they are wanting to construct their own spirituality. They want to make, if you will, God in their own image. And isn't that what our culture does today? They take a, a smorgasbord of things... Right? Everyone, I hate religion, I hate church, I hate all things Christian, all these terrible things, but, they, but I'm spiritual. And they'll take little bits of pieces from all. Oh, I take that piece out of Christianity, and that out of Hinduism, and that just out of something occultic here and that. And, and they create this like, well, I'm spiritual, and they put that at the center of their lives, and it's through that filter that they begin to evaluate all things. And they decide what is right and wrong, good and bad. They make their own spirituality. And eventually, they make their own God. Make bricks. Build a city upon it with a big tower. And why would I do that? Well, he says, come let us glorify our name, they say. They want to do it all to make a name for themselves. To be significant. To find meaning. To find hope. To find security. Like, I'm going to make a name for myself. They declare, if you read it carefully... At the end of verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves, lest. So, unless. In other words, we're doing this so this doesn't happen. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. Okay. 
what did God tell them to do? Go fill the earth. So the reason that they are making a name for themselves at the core of their motivations is basically disobedience. I want to call the shots in my life. And ultimately, they're making every effort, and they say it boldly, and God's listening to this. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build this tower of spirituality and build a life around it. It'll be awesome. Why? So we can rule our own lives and we can decide what we're going to do, when we're going to do it for our own glory and awesomeness. Really what is happening here in Genesis 11 is they're rebelling against God, believing that joy will be found elsewhere. And they're believing the same lie that our first parents Adam and Eve believed. Exactly the same. Where the accuser came and he said, did God really say this? Because that's not true. In fact, if you disobey, you will find wisdom and power and joy. You will find many things. Happiness exists apart from God's word. So instead of scattering, as they were told, they decide to settle. And they build in disobedience And as I said, they're building much more than just some big tower. They're building a life. And at the center of that life is the worship of men. And as I said, this is historically the the beginnings of what will become the civilization of Babylon. And if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, which describes the end of the world, it uses the city of Babylon as the iconic, symbolic city of what represents godlessness. You want to know about a city or a life that's godless? Babylon. That's what's happening here. They're building a life apart from God. So you go, well, how does God respond to that? How does the God who provides everything, the God who created everything, has been gracious, like how does he respond to that? How does he feel about that? Well, if God were a man, it would probably be quite tempting to just open up the floodgates again and let it rip, right? Clean the earth. But God promised he wouldn't. Promised he would not destroy. It's interesting. It's almost as if Genesis 11 says, he could do this. He should do this. But God said, I will not destroy. Even though God doesn't smite men the moment they sin, that doesn't mean that God doesn't intervene. Praise God that he does. Like, there was a time where God looked down on the earth and said, this is so messed up, I'm going to wipe it out. And now he looks down and he says, no, I'm going to jump in there. And I'm going to stop them. See, God's measured reaction to this rebellion reveals something about God. First of all, that he's very powerful. But he's actually very personal. That he gets involved, that he steps in. And he does so, I believe, providentially, to orchestrate all things to his end, to his plan, which is best. And so what does God do? He comes down from his tower, which I think is a hilarious statement. Okay, He comes down from his tower. Now, the first thing to understand is that God doesn't have to come down. Okay, When we think about God theologically, we know that God doesn't have to physically come down anywhere to see anything. It's not like he's like, what is going down, down, Oh, there's a city down there, and they're totally pagan. That's not what's going on. Okay, He doesn't have to do that. So you go, why would it ever be written that way? 
Why would it ever, like, you should read the Bible that way. Like, okay, like, that's kind of weird. God's, like, stepping down like, you know, some old man. Like, no. But why would they say that? Well, they say that for a number of reasons. The Bible often gives us, kind of, gives things human characteristics, even God, in order for us to understand what's really going on. And what's really going on is to remember that men had a certain mission, right? Let's build a tower into heaven. And as lofty as their aspirations may have been, looks like it didn't quite reach. The tower is puny. The tower is teeny. The tower is nothing. It is insignificant. It is small. It is compared to anything God might create. But it doesn't mean that men don't have an inflated vision of their stuff. Inflated vision of their greatness, and that is exactly what's being stated here. The thing about it is that even if God does, which I think He does, appreciate the stuff that we build and the stuff that we do, He's not threatened by it. He's maybe impressed by it. It's, it's remember last like it's like like a child coming to you with like you know this Lego like look at I did, I put these bricks together and like look isn't it cool? It's like a laser gun. You're like. Yeah, that's neat. I mean, and if you're cruel, it's like, that's not a laser gun. <laughs> and it breaks. But if you're, you're, you're like, oh, that's, you know, good for you. Well done, okay? But we look at other creations. We look at mankind, and we're very impressed with ourselves, right? I was remembering, I read this somewhere that, like, okay, so iPhone's pretty impressive, right? You know, I grew up watching Star Trek, like the red-shirted old Star Trek, awesome Star Trek. We're pretty close here. I mean, this is like, can't teleport and all that stuff, but everything else is there. There's more technology in this phone than there was in Apollo 11. Whoa! I mean, that's impressive, right? We go, I mean, Lord, we made iPhones. I mean, that's like, that's pretty awesome. And God's like, yeah, you know, that's, that's cool. Have you seen my stuff? He's like, well, like what? Like the tongue, the eyeball, the mouth, the brain? Yeah, that's my work. Oh, okay. That's impressive. Um, we look at, and I, there's all kinds of new inventions with Tesla and, and all these new things coming out with cars and different things. I mean, cars that drive themselves. And again, I'm like, that's cool. But it's like bringing the Legos to God. And he's like, look at this car he made, you know? And he's like, yeah, that's cool. Um, have you seen the hippo and the horse and um, the, these other animals that have basically carried civilization since the beginning? Yeah, I made those. That's mine. Okay. Um, or the buildings we build, right? You know, it's, uh, Trump Tower's a really convenient uh, reference these days. But like, you know, that idea, we build big stuff, we big build buildings, you know, and, and in the Middle East, they're building all kinds of just crazy stuff. You're like, wow, like those are, those are awesome big buildings. And we come to God, and God's like, yeah, um, super. Have you, uh, Mount Rainier? Yeah, built that. Um, Australia, planted that. Beautiful garden, huh? Uh, Jupiter, I set that in uh, the heavens. Like in all the stars, actually I got a name for every single one. I mean, we're small. Like we're teeny. And God, by simply saying he came down to the tower, he's like, let's keep things in perspective. Like nothing that we do threatens his plans. Like we could somehow twist it out of shape. He's like, he's in total control. And he's not impressed by what we might get impressed by. But then he does say, as he comes down, he says, look what they've done. Nothing's going to be impossible for them. And seeing what men built, he's like, whoa, supposedly. But knowing what he just said prior to that, 
it's not that God is talking about the height of their achievement. Like, I, I never thought they could build a tower this big. It's close to heaven, guys. We need to do something. It's not like that, right? Instead of talking about the height of achievement, what he's actually talking about is the depth of their depravity. Like, what's not going to be impossible is some really dark stuff. They've gone this far in the rebellion, and they're going to be able to go a lot further. God realizes that the pursuit of glorification is only going to get worse. And God himself says, like, you know what? They're building this idolatrous city with this weird spirituality at the center of it. And this is only the beginning of the evil that they're going to accomplish. And the thing about our culture, it's interesting. As technology connects us more and more and we become more of a global culture, I don't know about you, but from my perspective, it doesn't seem like our unity in that sense has actually um, done anything to cause the sin to decline. If anything, I think it has increased it and perpetuated it. I mean, unity for the sake of unity, like, hey, let's get together. This is Nimrodian. This is foolish, right? Because men get together and they do bad things oftentimes. Not always, but often. And long enough, I think they will. But unity with God at the center is glorious. And that's what the problem is. These guys right now, as time is going on, he says it's going to get worse. And in our culture, you know what we see? The more unified we get, the more institutionalized sin becomes. You see that? Over the last couple generations, that which was once like common sense to go, this is evil, has now become voted on and institutionalized in nations and states and communities. Our unity is not bringing us closer together. Well, it is in a sense to glorify and approve of sin. Now, God won't let them. He comes down, he confuses their language. He intervenes and he stops them. As one commentator, I think, suggested, they go from making a name for themselves to being unable to say each other's names in an instant. And as a result, everything changes. And we have to be careful not to view this as purely a punitive act. And that's really important as we begin to talk about what this means for us. This isn't a purely punitive act. God is not just some capricious, angry God that comes down and is going to punish everything. He actually is doing something that's um, preventative. He actually is limiting the damage of sin. It's similar to when he banished Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, where at first you read that and it's like, feels like, oh, you guys messed up in the garden. You get to go to the projects, all done, kick them out. But if you read the text at the end of Genesis 3, what it says is that lest they eat from the tree of life. He does not want them to remain in their sin. He doesn't want them to remain in their shame and their fear. And so he pushes them away and he guards the path that would actually make their sin perpetuate and grow and get worse over time. He pushes them out with a plan to redeem. And that's exactly what's happening here. It felt cruel to them. But it prevented mankind from remaining in their brokenness forever and accomplished two things, really, if you think about it. One is, by confusing their languages, he ensured obedience. They would disperse throughout the earth. In fact, it says it like two or three times afterwards. Then God dispersed them. God made them obey in a very natural way, it seemed, using supernatural means. 
But the also thing is that he ensured not only that they would obey, but that his redemptive plan would advance. Despite the sin of men, despite what they were trying to do, despite the fact that they were building on themselves, grace always supersedes sin. Grace is always more powerful than sin. God is always willing and does intervene to ensure that his plan is never thwarted. Now, let's be real. You read Genesis 11, typically, and you go, what in tarnation am I ever going to get from people talking freaky after trying to build a tower? I don't know. And that's an honest question, and I think it's one that we should ask. Paul, um, I'm always reminded of Romans 15, he always says, look, all these stories were written down for our instruction to encourage us to build our faith and to give us hope. And so we always have to ask, hey, how does this connect? How are we in some way like the people in the land of Shinar? How, how are we Nimrodian at times? And I don't mean them are Nimrodian, I mean us. And here's where it comes down to for me. The truth is that just as they built bricks, we build false idols all the time. We make bricks, really pretty ones, with etchings in there with lasers, right, to build our lives on. And these bricks are different sizes and different shapes, and we've all tried to use them at one time or another. And some of these bricks that we build our lives on are uh, popular bricks, bricks like sexuality, bricks like family, wealth, religion, education, achievement, even suffering. But these are the bricks that are not bad in themselves. There's nothing intrinsically evil about education or wealth or relationships or family. In fact, most of them are very good. But they become bad when we use them to build a foundation of identity. When we use them to basically establish the core of who we are as a people. And it becomes easy to see that sometimes if... if, um, if we pick something easy like wealth, we go, oh, my, my, my brick, my identity is wealth. And as long as I have wealth, I'm secure. I'm going to hope in wealth. If I have a certain level of income, I am, I am important. I'm meaningful. If I can have a certain lifestyle and we put that brick down, and often what happens is that brick gets shoved out. And because it was our identity, we lose it. We're devastated. And we all have a spiritual brick, right? Spiritual brick that that comes to dictate. And so we build this foundation of all these things. And again, the bricks themselves aren't bad, but when they are used as a foundation, that's a problem. They're not designed to be foundational bricks. But what happens is we build our own bricks, and then we build our lives on top of it. We build cities. It's not Again, a city, of course. It's a life that's built upon an identity that we have chosen for ourselves. The problem with that kind of life building is that the foundation of of who you are, however you've decided to build that, begins to dictate everything you think, everything you perceive, what you do, what you don't do, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. It drives everything. And... As a foundation, it's destructive. 
And what happens is because that's your identity, if someone ever, let's just say a very common one in our world is sexuality. And they define themselves by their sexuality. This is who I am. I didn't choose this, whatever it is. I'm going to put it down as a foundation. And when anyone ever comes and challenges it, and it could be any one of those bricks, but that's an obvious one. You challenge it, and what have you just challenged? Not just some behavior, not just some decision, but who they are at a core. If you're going to challenge who I am at a core, then we're going to have a huge problem. Because you're building your life on something that was never designed to be your identity. But because your life is built on that, everything that doesn't fit into that life or that city is rejected. And why are you building this? Ultimately, you're building your life to seek your own glory. At the core of all of this is self-glorification. And I don't necessarily mean that you want a tower where you can put your name on that everyone can see and you can go, look at me and my awesome tower. What I mean is that you want to build a name in that you want to determine your own name. You don't want to be told who you are. You want to decide who you are. You basically want complete independence from God. You don't want Him in your life. You want to reject His, His ways, His authority. You want to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, whatever you want. But here's the glory and the grace of God. He won't let us do that. He loves us too much to, to let us do that. So he comes down and he takes away our idols. Just as he confused the language of the people that made building possible, God yanks that was wrongly established as our foundation from underneath us and he lets the tower fall. When you build your foundation on something that is not God, everything else that is part of your life is threatened. You see that with a career. Someone says, man, this is my work is my brick. I'm going to build a whole foundation of bricks. And I want meaning in that. I need um, security in that. I want recognition in that. And then what happens when you lose that job? God will do that. You'll just go, boom, knock it out. And if who you were with God was based off of that, who's God now? He's the mean God that took away your job and didn't bless you. He's the God that allowed you to suffer and you've been serving Him. Or relationships or anything else that's a part of your life. Suddenly when that one thing that should never have been the foundation to begin with gets ripped out, you're devastated. God will do that. And even though it hurts, and guess what? It does. It does hurt. Perhaps you've, you know, health is yours. And, and, and you have just, you know, built like, I'm going to eat healthy, I'm going to live healthy, I'm going to exercise and all these things, and then suddenly you get leukemia. And your life is shattered because of that. And no one is saying that that's not a horrible thing. When God comes down and removes that idol, it is painful. It is horrible. But the hope is it's not completely devastating. Because the truth is God is graciously, He is graciously, as difficult as is, that dream you have, that that set of expectations you had, that kingdom you were building, that vision you had for your life, when God comes down and goes, nope, 
I'm knocking that tower down. My prayer is that you will see that as a gracious God bringing your self-glorifying construction project to a halt because that is what is truly hurting you and going to truly hurt others. God loves you enough not to let you. Now, it's interesting the transition right after that dispersion happened, right after God comes down and knocks it down. Moses ends chapter 11 with a genealogy. And this time it's the blessed line of Shem. Now the last blessed line that we read about was the blessed line, the godly line of Seth. Seth was the third son of Adam and Eve. Seth was given to replace, if you will, Abel, who had been killed by Cain. And after Seth's descendants began to grow, it says, men finally began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's the godly line of Seth. And the godly line of Seth is going to continue through the godly line of Shem. Goes through Noah to Shem, all the way to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, eventually Jesus. And this genealogy, although Shem has been stated before and Seth has been stated before, it's a very different kind of genealogy. It's different in that there are no deaths indicated. Typically, it said, and this guy died, and then this guy died, and this guy died. This is a line of life. This is a line where it's always pointing to the next generation. Then he gave birth to this guy. Then he gave birth to this guy. Then he gave birth to this guy because God is trying to say, look, I'm knocking this tower down, but there's a goal. We're moving forward and we're pointing to a place where life is going to happen. Don't sit in the despair of your crumbled city. He is moving, not just punishing, but restraining our sin and then helping us to move forward because God's not against building cities. He simply wants to ensure that they're built on the right foundation with the right tower at the center. Proverbs 18.10 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. You know what that really says? The Shem of the Lord. Right? It's all connected. God has His own city and He has a tower in that city and God intends to give us the identity that we try to build for ourselves. He intends us to build a community and He intends for us through that community to bring glory to Himself which will in turn bring joy to us and bless the world. And just as men call one another to, come on! Let us sin together. Let us disobey together. Let us build lives together. God says, surrender. Come to me. Let me build you. Let me build you up and do something glorious. This will be a weird way to end, but I'm doing it. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I think it will be on the screen, I want to make this a complete picture for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, written to Christians who are suffering greatly in the world, starting to ask questions, where is Jesus? Why is he returning? And this is what Peter writes in the first few verses. If you want to know where Peter is, start in Revelation, the back of the Bible, turn left. You get Jude, John, then you'll get to Peter. 1 Peter 2, beginning of verse 4, says, As you come to him, a living stone, is Jesus. As you come to Him, a living stone, later you'll say a cornerstone, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, 
chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Did you hear the Tower of Babel in there? Stones, building, worship. See, God says stop building your tower and He invites us to come to the living stone, the living brick. God does not want us to make our own bricks. God calls us to find our identity in Christ. He calls us and says, look, you are chosen before the foundation of the world. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are blessed. You are promised an eternal inheritance. Stop trying to find meaning and joy and ultimate value here. He says, build your life upon a foundation that will never go away, that you can never lose, that circumstances can't change. If you build your foundation on anything other than God, any circumstance can come and, if, and change it, and the one that will come and change it will be death. But in Christ, not even death can shake that foundation. Who we are in Christ as a foundation shapes everything that we think, everything that we do, everything that we hope, because first and foremost, I am a son and daughter of the King. I am a son and daughter of the King before I am a husband, before I am a wife, before I am a mom, a dad, a citizen, a worker, before all these things. I am first and foremost a son and daughter of the King. And as a son and daughter of the King, that shapes what I am or who I am as a husband or as a friend or as a father or as a citizen or as a worker. In Christ, I no longer go into the world trying to discover or prove who I am by building, but I reveal who God has made me to be wherever I am through whatever He builds. And God... Not only says, like, look, stop looking for bricks. Like, just come to the brick I gave you. Then he says, don't build. I'm, I'm building. He says, I'm building you up into a spiritual house. He says, when God calls us to himself in Christ, he doesn't just call us to salvation as individuals. Praise God, I'm saved. He calls us to a people. When we are in Christ, we are a body, not just a person. And it's a body that's beautifully diverse. And as we gather together as a people, I need you to understand that we are not gathering here to celebrate or even despair about all the things that we have done. We are coming here to talk about what God has done for us and what God is doing in us. That is why we're here, to worship Him, to direct our attention to Him. We have a shared identity, and guess what? It's a shared identity of Nimrod's. We have a shared past. We're all broken. Different colors of brokenness, but we're broken. We have a shared present where we are saints and sinners together in one place. And we have a shared future where we are going to one day be in the presence of Jesus. Perfect. Restored. Apart from Christ, we were sinners, lost and alone. But in Christ, we are saints and we are found as a family. And as family, guess what we do? We are being built up and we help each other grow. Reminding those who are despairing that God is moving. And reminding that those who have built some awesome things and some successful things to boast in the cross and to not become prideful. 
And as God lovingly tears away our different idols, because it will happen to all of us, idols come and they captivate our affections and they sneak in, and as God says, I'm not going to let that, and He pulls it. For those of us who have family, and the idolatry of family, suddenly your family gets disrupted, or your job, or whatever, you know what we need to be? There for one another, reminding ourselves of who we are. That God is a Father, He loves you. That we are being built up together, and I'm going to be there to cry with you, I'm going to be there to laugh with you, and we're going to be there to admonish one another, and to encourage one another, and to say, look, let's never forget that God is more interested in our holiness than He is our happiness. And that our holiness is the path of joy. Happiness is just circumstantial. But lastly, what does he say? We're built together to display the glory of God through worship and sacrifice. As family, we are not some Christian club men hiding out in a cave somewhere. We're supposed to be a city on a hill with a Jesus Tower at the center. It is a tower that's like a lighthouse for a community designed to be seen and to help us see. We are the spiritual house that God is building among many spiritual houses that are out there. We are not just brothers and sisters in Christ. We are people of the way, and the people of the way live differently because we've been made different. We have been given a new mind, a new heart, a new soul with new desires, and therefore what we do now is our spiritual act of worship. Our obedience to His Word is our witness to the world. And I know a lot of us go, oh, really, obedience? That's all it is? Yes. When you obey God's Word, we're talking about a Word that commands us to love one another, to love our neighbor, to do lots of things. And let us never forget in John 15 what Jesus said about commandments and obedience. He said, I give you these commands so that your joy will be made full. It's not often we connect obedience with joy. But once you are convinced that my obedience isn't about merit, it's not about me being accepted, it's not about me being approved because Jesus already loves me, that my obedience is actually just about pursuing joy, you will pursue obedience and godliness fearlessly and relentlessly. So let's just not be impressed by what we can do. Let's not be impressed by what men can build, but amazed at what God has done in us and what God is still doing and still building and will build. And instead of responding to the world's innumerable invitations to come, let us glorify ourselves. Come, let's build something awesome for ourselves. Let's invite our neighbors and our friends and the least of these and the most of those to leave their little towers they're building because they are puny and come and seek refuge in the tower that God has built and be built up together. I'll close with the rest of what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. That same continuing thought, he says, but you are, not you will be, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may look awesome to everybody? No, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, have right perspective as sojourners and exiles. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? Obey, right? Obey, he says. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and think you're awesome? No. They may glorify God. Through your obedience, they go, wow. See what that Nimrod is now doing? Wow, God is big. If God can change him, change her, I can change anybody. We take communion every Sunday to celebrate and direct our eyes toward what God has done for us in Christ. And Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 to take communion in a worthy manner. And by that, I think you need to ask yourselves two questions. One is, what is my relationship with God? What truly is the brick I'm building my life upon? Where is my identity truly found? What is that thing that if I lost tomorrow, I fear most? And if it's not Jesus, whom you can't lose, you have something to confess. He wants your heart. He wants you to spend time in his tower and ignore yours. Let it fall. But also, this is a shared meal. So as we come together and go, what is my relationship with God? What is your relationship to God's people? Because he saved us as a people. We are being built as a people. We are growing as a people. We need to know each other and be known. God is building us. And so as we close, I pray that you'll spend some time evaluating. Let the Spirit speak to you. And then celebrating and rejoicing over what God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray.